Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning you would give us ears to hear and hearts willing and ready to receive your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the American author John Steinbeck once wrote that an unbelieved truth can hurt a man much more than a lie. An unbelieved truth can hurt a man much more than a lie. One of the major themes of Paul's letter to Titus, and one that is central to our text this morning, the short greeting, is the absolute importance of truth in the Christian life. The importance of truth. Believing truth, knowing truth, and being changed by the truth. The vision of Christian life, which fills out Paul's letter to Titus, this short but very weighty letter, is this very big idea of truth. It, it structures the whole thing. And so in, in connection with that big idea of truth, I would have us consider three points from our text this morning, three major points to consider. First, God never lies. God never lies. Second, the truth that God tells us or the truth that God reveals to us is greater than we could ever imagine. And finally, the truth that God reveals changes the way we live. The truth God reveals changes the way we live. First, God never lies. Paul's letter to Titus is a very practical letter. After this greeting, you have all sorts of instruction given to Titus about how he can help believers on the island of Crete, an island that at this point would have been inhospitable to the gospel. Advice, instruction, how to help those believers live out their Christian faith in a context in which that would be difficult. So we get instructions for how to pick elders, instructions for how to combat false teaching, how to help these Christians see and pursue godliness, and how to preach sound doctrine towards that end. So it's a very practical letter. But all of this practical instruction flows from Paul's understanding of truth, Paul's understanding of what is true about God and what has God revealed to be the truth. Without that truth, without knowing the truth about God and his gospel, none of Paul's instruction would make sense. None of it would have a basis. So we need to consider the big truths about God that Paul wants Titus to communicate to his people so that they would be changed. The first big truth is that God never lies. In, in Titus 1, verse 2, and I, I'm isolating and drawing your attention to just a fragment of this verse. In the middle of verse 2, we read, God who never lies. God who never lies. God never lies. This is a truth that we learn or are meant to learn maybe like the first day of Sunday school. God doesn't lie. This is something we know. And Paul states it in kind of a uh, very, very concise, simple way. And it, it happens in the middle of a larger sentence. So we might think, oh, this is skippable. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. We pass by that. But we pass by that at our peril because the familiar truths are the ones we often don't appreciate as we should. 
God never lies. We could state it positively. God always tells the truth. Even we could make a statement about his very being. God is truth. They did a survey a few years back, a national survey of a thousand Americans, asking each person to report the the number of lies they had told the previous 48 hours, actually 24 hours. How many lies have you told in the past 24 hours? Um, They found some rather interesting results. Uh, Some communication professors out of the University of Michigan did an analysis of this survey, and they found that nearly half of the lies told in the preceding 24 hours were told by only 5% of those surveyed. So, So they have this kind of uh, cold and scary summation. They say, most reported lies are told by a few prolific liars. So this is kind of fascinating research. It's, it's a little bit scary to think that half of the lies in our country are told by just a handful of people. Um, but I think we'd be forgiven for asking, can we trust the answers they gave to this survey? Were the liars lying? I mean... You have to ask it, were the liars lying? And, and what about those other 95% where they had to have been lying about the number of lies they told, right? So I think this is a, a survey and a study that maybe we should take with a grain of salt. The point is, we don't need research. We don't need a survey to inform us of the fact that human beings tell lies. Human beings find it easy to lie. We find it easy to fudge the truth. Not, maybe not an outright lie, but something that's off kilter from the truth. Something just slightly amiss about what we say and who we present ourselves to be. Think even of the most trustworthy person you know. The most trustworthy person you know. And if they haven't lied to you, if they haven't lied recently probability that they've lied at some point, maybe to someone else, about something, no matter how small, is uh, very, very high. People tell lies. God never lies. Think about that. God never lies. You can trust God with everything you have and with everything you are, because he knows the truth, and he cannot but comply and accord with the truth. He is the truth in his very being. We could even think of other conceptions of God that people have had throughout human history. We could think of the Roman and Greek gods. They didn't even think those gods were trustworthy. In fact, in Homer's Odyssey, the goddess Athena is actually praised for her ability to trick people. That's seen as a a good thing. She's so crafty. She can trick people. What an amazing goddess. But God never lies. The true God never lies because to be true is to be God. The idea of Godhead, what makes God God, is absolutely eradicated by any notion that he could ever tell or countenance a lie. And that is very good news. Without a true God, everything we think the Bible tells us about who he is would be called into question. We'd have to question it. If we don't know that God is true, 
There is uncertainty, no matter how small, about whether it's true or not. It seems true, but maybe it's not true. But we have a God who is true. So everything he tells us is true. Maybe today you just need to be encouraged by the fact that even though there's a lot of falsehood in this world, there is a God who is true. God is true. God is not a man that he can lie. God is unlike us in his utter truthfulness. This comes up again and again in scriptures, God's truthfulness. Consider, for instance, Psalm 57, verse 10, where we read, Your loving kindness is great to the heavens, and paralleled with God's loving kindness, your truth is great to the clouds. Psalm 117, verse 2. His loving kindness is great toward us, again, paralleling God's loving kindness with his truth, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. The truth of the Lord is everlasting. And then consider, finally, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not shy away from referring to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The truthfulness of God is a bedrock confession of our faith, what it means to be Christian. So it stands to reason that at the outset of his letter, Paul would want to stress this most fundamental truth. God never lies. I'm writing to you about the gospel and the Christian life with full confidence because God never lies. He tells the truth. So I I pointed out that we kind of have isolated those words in just drawing out that central truth and that they take place within the context of a larger, much more complex sentence. So I'll read the text again for us, verses 1 through 3, so we can get a full full drift of, of what's being said here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The truth that God never lies, nestled in that large sentence, is prompted by another truth, another staggering truth, and that is that God has promised eternal life to his people. God promised eternal life before the ages began and at the proper time manifested it in his word. If we were left to ourselves to think about God, to think, what is God like? What does God do? What kind of God is he that exists? We might, apart from Revelation, think that God is true God, think God never lies. We might come to that conclusion. Yes, it, the idea of God and the idea of truth need to go together. A God who lies doesn't, doesn't match up to our notion of deity. It doesn't fit. We might think that. We might think God never lies. But we might think it only because we might think God never communicates at all. God doesn't talk, we might think. God can't lie, of course, because he would never talk to us in the first place. This is basically the notion of God which the deists 
of the 18th century, a lot of people who were significant to America's founding had actually. They believed in a God, an all-wise creator God, who made the world. So he was held responsible for creating the world, but uninterested in corresponding with his creatures. A lot of people might think of God that way even today. There's probably a God. How do you explain all of this? How do you explain existence? How do you explain the beauty in the world, the complexity? But I don't think that God talks to us, would talk to me, would reveal anything of significance to me. I don't think God reveals truth. He's a true God who doesn't speak about that truth. But the good news of the Christian faith is that God is not only true, but God tells us truth. God reveals truth to us that we could not discover for ourselves. And that truth is staggering, eternal life. God has promised eternal life. And that means God has promised for those who put their faith in Christ to give them the gift of eternal life, which means living forever, never dying, never wasting away, never decaying. It means the fullness of life forever. The fullness of life that God has in himself, we are given by grace the opportunity to participate in. God has promised eternal life. But he not only has promised it, and you'll notice he promised it before the ages began. So it was in the mind of God from eternity past, in his timeless being, to bless his creatures with eternal life. You'll notice he not only promised that, but he manifested it. At the proper time, he manifested this truth, the hope of eternal life, through the preaching which, with which I, Paul, have been entrusted. When Paul preached the gospel, every time he preached the gospel, God was speaking anew through him, through a human instrument, the truth. Christ came, died, and rose again to give those who trust in him the gift of eternal life. One of the most underrated movies of all time, and from a kind of a golden age of filmmaking, the early 2000s, is, is National Treasure. I don't know how many of you might have seen National Treasure. So uh, this film stars the incomparable Nicolas Cage, and it tells the story of an eccentric treasure hunter played by Nicolas Cage with his characteristic credibility who is convinced that there's a map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. It's invisibly, I think it's like encoded or something, or it's like revealed with some sort of ointment. No idea. It makes sense. He's convinced there's a map, and he's convinced that this map on the back of the Declaration of Independence leads to the greatest treasure the world has ever known, ancient treasures beyond anyone's wildest imagination, coins and relics, from thousands of years ago worth billions of dollars. He's convinced there's a map on the back of the Declaration of Independence, and so he states in the great line of the film, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence to find the map and to find that treasure. 
a lot of people think he's crazy throughout the movie. His father is also a kind of eccentric treasure hunter, and even he thinks he's crazy. There's no way there's a map on the back of the Declaration of Independence leading to this untold treasure. But about 100 minutes elapse, and it turns out Nicolas Cage was right. He is always right. And there is, in fact, this ancient treasure. They stumble into a dusty room, and it's dimly lit only by their lanterns that they have. And, but they can even make out in the dim light that there are coins and relics, goblets, and there's even like a blue statue. They found the treasure. But it's still dark, and, and could that be it? Is that all there is? And Nicolas Cage stumbles along a little bit further, and he, he happens upon a standing lantern, which he lights. And that lantern spreads and lights up a network of lanterns, stretching as far as the eye can see and revealing more treasures than even Nicolas Cage in his wildest dreams could have imagined. This arduous quest with twists and turns brought them to the treasure they were looking for. We could never, on our own, discover or grope our way to the treasures that God has promised to us. We could never think there's eternal life for us. We could never find that eternal life. We could never find that eternal treasure unless God had revealed it to us. The light of God's word, preached and read, reveals to us, though in a dim fashion now, in the weakness of our finitude, the glories that await us. God has said there is a treasure greater than you can imagine. And God has certified that it is real. And God has certified through Christ's sacrifice that it is yours. We read in Ephesians of the blessings that are in Christ. Paul breaks out into praise. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have a God who is true. We have a God who has told us the truth. And the truth he has told us is beyond anything we could imagine. Eternal life. And this brings us to our final point, which is meant in, in the logic of Paul, in, in the logic of the entire New Testament, really, meant to follow almost like a conclusion, like a logical conclusion. We have a God who is true. We have a God who tells us the truth, who reveals the truth. And therefore, the truth that God reveals is meant to change us. The truth God reveals is meant to change us. Look again at verse 1. We read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Godliness is a very important theme throughout the letter of Titus. But every time Paul discourses on godliness, he also discourses on the gospel. We go wrong when we think about what it means to live a godly life. The moment we forget the basis of a godly life. The basis of a godly life is the truth of the gospel. There is no pursuit of godliness without the truth of the gospel. There is no pursuit of godliness without the Holy Spirit of God 
convicting us of the truth of the gospel and changing us by that truth. Paul says basically the same thing that he says in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that godliness, knowledge of the truth, accords with godliness. He says the same thing in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, if you would turn there. Titus 2, verse 11, I'm sorry. In Titus 2, verse 11, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, or you could say has been manifested, bringing salvation for all people. This is very important. Notice the order here. Bringing salvation for all people. That's salvation. Following that, this salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, again, the manifesting of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't have the power to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and everything that tempts us in the present age. We don't have the power to say no to that and yes to God's way unless we know and are changed by the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is that God did not save us because we lived good lives. God saved us because we lived godly, godless lives. God said, I am going to save godless sinners, not godly sinners, not decent people, not nice people, people who want nothing to do with me. I am going to save them. And Christ came to die for sinners. We have to have the order right. We don't pursue godliness. We don't We don't strive to live in a way that pleases God so that God will reward us, so that God will grant us salvation. We pursue godliness because God has already saved us, and he's working in us through his spirit. The spirit is convicting convicting us of truth, changing us by the power of truth. And this can be messy, and this can be slow, and this can be painful and awkward, but God is changing us because he has promised to do so. God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. But we need these big truths. We can't have Jesus light. We need the full Jesus. We need the supernatural Son of God, Jesus. I say this because a lot of people admire Jesus. They admire his ethical teachings. They think, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was like the Buddha. He was like a lot of other religious teachers. Just a lot of wisdom and and help for us on how we can live a good life. Thomas Jefferson thought that we could just take the ethical stuff from Jesus, and that would be enough. We just need the ethics. We don't need all of this supernatural stuff. So in his New Testament, he excised famously references to the supernatural in the New Testament. Anything about Jesus being the Son of God, anything about eternal life, resurrection, all of those elements that he found unbelievable. He took those out because he thought just a pure moral code, a pure ethic of Jesus would be enough. A lot of people might wonder, what what is the point of hearing from Jesus if he's not divine, if he's not the Son of God? What what is the point? One uh, One of my favorite authors to read is just because he's so fascinating is David Foster Wallace. And David Foster Wallace wrote an essay 
about the Russian author Dostoevsky. And when he was commenting on Dostoevsky's conversion to Christianity, he kind of, he breaks out in this essay into like a sidebar, just stream of consciousness, as he often does in his essays. And he asks some really interesting questions about Jesus and what difference it might make to believe in Jesus. He writes, does this guy, Jesus Christ's life, have something to teach me even if I don't or can't believe that he was divine? What am I supposed to make of the claim that someone who was God's relative, God's son, voluntarily let them nail him up there and died? Did he know he could have broken the cross with just a word? Did he know in advance that death would just be temporary? Does any of that really matter? Can I still believe in Jesus Christ even if I don't believe he was a relative of God? Except what would that mean, believe in? Those are some really good questions. Like many people, David Foster Wallace wrestled with the supernatural stuff, the claims that Jesus was the divine Son of God, that Jesus was God in the flesh. This is an unbelievable claim. It's a very difficult claim for us to grasp. So he thinks, well, maybe, maybe I can glean something of meaning from Jesus' life, even if I don't take all of that stuff. But, but what would it mean to believe in a Jesus who wasn't who he claimed to be, who wasn't divine? Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He died on the cross, and his death renders ours temporary, as David Foster Wallace wonders. We need these big truth claims if we're going to have any hope of change, because when we strip Jesus of his deity, when we strip the gospel of its supernatural elements, we're left with just another ethic. We're left with another moral code, and moral codes are powerless to change us. We need a person We need the Spirit of God within us. We need to believe these truths. We believe there's eternal life, that there's a heavenly kingdom without end. That should radically change the way we relate to this present age, which we all know is fleeting, which we all know is fading away faster than we'd like. But it is. The truth is that all of the supernatural stuff is true. And because Jesus is the Son of God. Because he has granted us eternal life through faith in him, we're changed slowly, steadily, but surely. We're not made into nice people. We're made into new people. C.S. Lewis has a chapter in Mere Christianity called New People, New Men. He writes this on the centrality of these truths being true and redemption being real for the pursuit of godliness in the Christian life. He writes this, Mere improvement is no redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, redemption always improves people. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. 
Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow, when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings, may even give it an awkward appearance. The sanctification process is lifelong. It's difficult. There are awkward moments. We are in between who we used to be and who God is making us into. But he is, slowly, painfully, but surely, by his truth confirmed in our hearts, making us into new people, making us into people different from the surrounding culture, making us into people who are learning more and more how to renounce ungodliness and how to pursue the Lord's ways. But that is only possible by his spirit. Not efforts of our own, but his spirit working through us, working through the truth that he has graciously revealed to us. We have a God who never lies. We have a God who tells us truth greater than we could ever imagine. Finally, we have a God who changes us by his truth. So we've talked about truth a lot today, but there's one element of the truthfulness of God that we haven't teased out and which I would like to conclude on, and that is God's faithfulness. Of a peace with God's truthfulness is his faithfulness. The theologian Louis Burkhoff writes about God's faithfulness in the context of his truthfulness in a way that's tremendously helpful. He writes this, in virtue of God's faithfulness, he is ever mindful of his covenant and fulfills all the promises which he has made to his people. God promised eternal life. He will fulfill that promise to you. This faithfulness is of the utmost practical significance to the people of God. It is the ground of their confidence, the fountain of their hope, and the cause of their rejoicing. It saves them from the despair to which their own unfaithfulness might easily lead, gives them courage to carry on in spite of their failures, and fills their heart with joyful anticipations, even when they are deeply conscious of the fact that they have forfeited the blessings of God. God remains faithful even when we are faithless. May we ask today for the Spirit's help to convict us anew of the truth of the gospel and to change us, however slowly, however painfully, according to the truth that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask again that you would convict us of the truth, of the, the certain hope of eternal life that we have because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to die on behalf of sinners and to rise again to give them certain hope. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all please stand as we continue?